2: Hello, stranger. Is all right. So the, the, the song that you're hearing right now is actually uh, instrumental. Uh, it's not as as an instrumental, but it's an instrumental in the movie that we're about to talk about. Um, I should first of all say there's no comedy intro today because I sort of couldn't figure out. I mean, not that the movie or anything else we're going to talk about today is horribly somber or any more somber anyway than most of the things that we talk about and do comedy intros for. I just couldn't find a way in somehow. I don't know. There's some way in which the movie that we're about to talk about, which is called Moonlight, is, is so perfect in in what it is, that it's kind of hard to do a gloss on it anyway. Uh, It would feel like sacrilege, uh, at least to me. Anyway, that may not be the case for all the guests, although I kind of happen to know it is. Uh, Tom Breen is the film critic uh, for the New Haven Independent and the host of Deep Focus. I've got a new way of saying it.
0: There are six E's in that, so that was pronounced correctly.
2: (laughs) You need somebody with an even deeper voice to say that, though. (laughs) Welcome to Deep. Are we recording this? Can I? Yeah. (laughs) On WNHH. Lucy Gelman is a reporter for the New Haven Independent and station manager at WNHH. And Sean Murray, making his debut on the nose, is a stand up comedian based in New Haven. Uh, And we're excited to have him with us today. We are going to talk about Moonlight. Uh, Moonlight is a uh, movie that uh, tells essentially three stages. Uh, in the life uh, of a, a young gay man, uh, grow, from boy growing up, growing up from boy to man, poor in Miami, uh, and uh, well, you know, it's usually one of the problems that we have with clips from this: is there are very few movies that use silences as mm-hmm. effectively as this movie does, and the protagonist is is notoriously within the movie a man of very few words uh, after being a boy of very few words. So you're going to hear a scene. Uh, this actually involves uh, the protagonist's mother. His name, the protagonist is named Uh You're going to hear his mother uh, talking to a man named Juan. Juan is kind of a mid-level drug dealer, but he has a heart of gold. Uh, he has noticed that nobody's really kind of taking care of this boy. The mother has a drug problem. Uh, the boy is being harassed. Uh, by other boys who seem to have already somehow or other detected uh, his sexual orientation. Uh, And so you're going to hear uh, his mother, played by Naomi Harris, who I believe is Miss Moneypenny now in the uh, Bond movies, uh, talking to this man who kind of out of nowhere has uh, taken a temporary uh, interest in her son.
1: What happened? Huh? What happened, Chiron? Why you didn't come home like you're supposed
0: to? Huh? And who is you? Nobody. I found him yesterday. Found him in a hole on 15. Yeah, that one. Some boys chased him in the cut. He's scared more than anything. He wouldn't tell me where he lived till this morning. Well, thanks for seeing to him. Tomorrow. He usually can take care of himself you good that way.
2: But. Little man. All right, so uh, let's start with our uh, film critic. This movie was made for, I think, very little money. Um, the director would be happy to tell you. Uh, It was made for very little money uh, based on an idea that existed within a play. Uh, We'll tell you a little bit more about the man who wrote the play because uh, he has some significance here to where we are right now. Uh, It doesn't have any really major stars in it, although I think we might be seeing the Janelle Monae movie career get kicked off. I know she's going to be in Hidden Figures. Uh, early next year. But um, somehow or other, Tom, this movie has really gotten the attention it deserves. It's suddenly part of a lot of big conversations about best movies of the year.
0: So I think there are a number of reasons why this movie has gotten so much attention and also a number of reasons, maybe the same, maybe slightly different, of why it is such an incredible achievement and such a great work of art. And during our email thread before the nose, we were talking about how can we convince a hypothetical viewer, for instance, Jonathan's mom, that this is a life-changing movie, that this isn't just a representation of a, a story that isn't often told in mainstream America, but in mainstream American culture, but it's actually an exemplary one. And I think the true maybe artistic achievement of this movie first is the way that it grapples with this concept of double consciousness. And that is the idea that uh, kind of articulated by W. B. Du Bois at the turn of the century. But it's something that I think many minorities have grappled with throughout the history of America, which is the two kind of identities of who you are, who you feel yourself to be, and who you present as based on what other people expect from you. Uh, here we have a taciturn, incredibly sensitive young man who also, you know, admires uh, a, a hard kind of the guy that runs the streets, the drug dealer Juan, who is, yeah, maybe he, you know, on paper, that character may read like a stereotype in a drug dealer with a heart of gold, but there's such delicacy um given to the description of each of these characters, that they really emerge above any kind of stereotypical depiction. And what this movie takes, you know, it takes this idea of double consciousness, the conflict of multiple identities, and, it's, and it shows moments of reconciliation in the moonlight, on the beach, by the waves, when these two identities allied into something that isn't just kind of painful and rife with conflict, but actually, you know, about intimate connection. And I think that's something very rare. Uh, in depicting both vulnerability and kind of authentic connection between people
2: rather than asking each of you pointed questions although since sean's the newest person here we thought about making him pretend that he hated the movie uh, (laughs) just so that because like you know but um i know everybody really liked this movie a lot so i'm just going to ask each of you starting with you lucy what, what you know because you pointed out correctly in the email we probably all liked it differently what did you love about it
1: Oh, well, I I mean, I I love that this movie, um, its strength, and it has many incredible strengths, but its most pronounced strength is that it operates in nuance and understatement. Um, Colin, you were talking about the importance of silence, and I don't think one can um, sort of talk about that point enough. Um, So silence and then also um, speech, when it is used, it's used very economically at times, and gesture. And the... um, Sort of the uh, coherence of gesture between young Chiron and older Chiron as well as middle Shyron, um, to tell this very um, this this story that is supposed to be unextraordinary, and I think becomes uh, touching in in the the way that it is told to be unextraordinary, and, and just to say, hey, this is one portrait of one person throughout several years of his life. um really stuck with me and and I think this was something that I saw and said I wasn't as blown away as maybe I thought I was going to be. But here I am seventy two hours later and I'm still thinking about it very much in vivid color.
3: Yeah. Sean? I like the uh the subtlety of it. Um, it does a great job of like the show and not telling thing that you're always mm-hmm. supposed to do in in like that type of art. Like I was listening to an interview with Barry Jenkins, the director, and he was telling a story about the guy, Juan's character is based off is a guy, similar guy in his life named Blue, who he he took that same role. Like he was a drug dealer, but he took him in. And then one weekend he went away with his real father and he came back and Blue was dead. And that's kind of how they do it in the movie where it's like you don't know that Juan's character has passed away until much later. Like they cut to the the next stage mm-hmm. of uh, Chiron's life and then you just find out. And it's like it kind of has a deeper impact than if you just like, they didn't have to have a scene where he's gunned down or whatever. You don't even need to know how it happened. You just know that he's gone. And like just him walking into Janelle Monae's character's house and like, he's not there. And you kind of wonder like, where is Juan? And then it kind of comes out. Like it's kind of fed to you a little slower than it it would normally be. I think that's so subtle. And then like just the performances are so like uh, Lucy was saying, so much of it is, is not spoken. It's just like, the camera shows it all. Like Even, like, the introduction of Juan, you learn that he's the, like, the top guy in the streets just from the scene. No one ever says, like, Juan, no one ever said to say that about him. Like, when the, the opening scene, he just goes to the block and he's talking to his, like, lieutenant. And you can tell that he has control of all of that without them ever having this. No one has to have to say, like, oh, well, Juan's the guy and the top dog. It's just, like, you just know it. I think it's so amazing. And then, like, the casting, like... They said they never try to cast based on appearance, but it's just perfect. Like that, that there's that poster where it's the three slices of each, um, all, all their faces. Mm-hmm. It's like they're so well casted, and like for each stage of his life, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, I saw it with a group of, uh, or with two other people, and one one of the people who, as we walked out, said, "This is one of those movies that prove that casting directors should get Academy Awards. It is so immaculately cast, and it is very interesting." Since you mentioned the uh, scene where, uh, in fact, uh, so once again, just sort of set this up a little bit, and I'm, we're trying not to spoil anything. I don't think I don't think it'd be kind of hard to spoil things in this movie. It's really not that kind of movie, but trying not to spoil things. But there is a, a scene where the uh, the sort of the middle version. Uh, of this character uh, Chiron shows up at the one house where he's ever really kind of been taken care of paradoxically it's the house of this guy Juan this kind of hard but kind drug dealer his significant other is played by Janelle Monet you hear her uh, interacting in the way that uh, Sean is talking about with uh, young uh, but not quite so young Chiron
3: alright water for me and a little jam for you <laughs> Boy, please. I know wine used to give you that gin, but we ain't doing that up in here, Shouted, You don't think my joke was funny? What's wrong? Nothing. I'm good. No. I ain't seen good, and you ain't it. Stop putting your head down in my house. You know my rule. It's all love and all pride in this house. You feel me? I can't hear you. Do you feel me? Yeah. Okay. I feel you. All
2: right. All right, that's also from Moonlight. Um, Tom, one thing that I I, I wanna see this movie again just For technique. Not that I'm a big technique maven, but you know, Barry Jenkins uh, works with a camera guy, with a cinematographer. I think he's known since college or film school or something like that. Um, whatever their collaboration is like, it's remarkable. Uh, there are ways in which I think we've all gotten kind of annoyed with handheld cameras. But here they're used. One of the early seeds is this kind of jittery chase where uh, the young Chiron is being chased by his tormentors. Um, the use of the handheld camera there is just amazing. It really kind of recreates the motion. There's a, another moment where he's kind of being circled by his chief tormentor, a guy. Named Tyrell, where they just the camera just moves quickly in the circle, and we're just once again we're kind of you know we're experiencing probably the the panicky gaze uh, of the person who's going to be the subject of the vi- object of the violence. There, this, there's a scene where he's being taught to swim, where the water is just used so amazingly. Water is also used amazingly in this completely heartrending scene where little uh, Chiron, he's known as Little. Uh, is boiling a pot of water. I think this comes right from Barry Jenkins's life too. Both of the two people who created this grew up, I think, in the same projects in Miami. Uh, I think uh, he's boiling this huge pot of water that he's going to add to bath water so they can have a hot bath. And then suddenly the camera also just lingers on him, and he's got. The suds are kind of, you know, up around his uh, his hair and his eye. He looks like an old man. There's like a statue of an old man sitting in this tub. And it's these Edward Hopper-type scenes of this diner that sort of com- makes up the kind of the last set of images from the movie. I don't know. Tom, there's a, just an incredible beauty amid the poverty of this movie.
0: So if I may identify one more kind of signature camera move in this movie before talking about the effect of the technique, is these tracking shots in which the camera is following Chiron or Black or little from behind as he's walking to kind of initiate a pretty momentous encounter in whatever scene we're in. In the middle section, it's a pretty violent encounter in which Mm -hmm. we see him entering a school and, uh, Having a uh, pretty serious confrontation mm-hmm. with a bully, and in the final sequence, in the diner sequence, we follow him as he approaches the diner. The diner where his his lover from ten years ago is now working as the cook. The camera does the exact same move. We f- we remember the the anger and the just the incredible physicality of the motion that led to the smashing of the chair behind someone's back, but instead we're taken to a moment of incredible tenderness, a moment of reconnection of characters. And that is what, I mean, we can't talk, yes, there's, you know certainly it's easy to be fatigued by conspicuous camera movements, but I don't want to get to a place where I ever like talk about a movie or a work of art without considering the form and addition of the content. And this is such a beautiful uh, kind of conjunction of form and content And that we get the camera, kind of recurring camera movements, camera placements, telling us something about the identity of this character and the way that they're repeated through the sections gives audiences and encourages them to be perceptive. You have to be attentive to every single little thing that's going on. We only seen little, given a big smile once and that's when he's dancing and that's through a mirror and you you really have to be paying attention and i think these little tricks these little techniques kind of keep you attuned to that uh and yeah you can't i can't say enough about james laxton who's the cinematographer on this project the way that he communicates the identity of an incredibly taciturn guy right we have to feel like someone who doesn't talk so how do we do that we feel the sand in their fingers we feel the wind on their face the ice of the freezer in their face this is a very like tactile movie, and a lot of that is communicated through the camera work.
2: Yeah, I don't know if either one of you, Sean or Lucy, have little moments that you were particularly in love with from this movie. Uh, I, one of them that that Tom just made me think of. There's one kind of homoerotic scene on on, on the beach uh, at night, a deserted beach, and at the end of it, one of the two participants in the homoerotic scene, he just kind of drags his hand across the sand. You know, and it just that it's like just somehow or other, this is like this incredibly vivid sort of telling moment. And, you know, yeah, go ahead, John.
3: No, I really love that uh, that scene. I also love this scene. With uh, little Chiron when they're playing, uh, kill the man with the ball mm-hmm. in the park. It's just like the intimacy, and that's what one of the things I loved about the tracking shots too, like the intimacy of the camera. A lot of times in films, when there's a tracking shot, it's used just because the novelty of like a a particular type of shot, because like people like that kind of thing. But it, he uses it so well in terms of intimacy and like the um, intimacy and the handheld shot for that um, when like uh I can't remember the other character's name. <coughs> um his the the love interest. Kevin Kevin, Kevin, Kevin yeah. yeah. But when um when they're kind of wrestling and they they he like he teaches like he's telling like like fight me, like you got to stand up for yourself and like the camera is so close and it it, it just like the, you can feel you, you can feel yourself in that situation. I've been, like I remember being young and like fighting and be, feeling like someone's that close to me and like you can understand how that the relationship develops because like in that moment. Like you don't like like it, it it never feels forced like that relationship it just it seems so natural and that's part i think the camera work is a lot has a lot to do and with if that.
0: i could just very quickly interject that scene it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie the scrum on the football field and it also if you so the, the camera work is great but also underscoring that is mozart i mean we, we're yeah. here mozart yeah. as these kids you know playing with just a pile of paper you know it just speaks to this immensity of feeling that this kid has inside of him such density of emotion and identity and it's it just blew me away
2: um, yeah, the, you know the music of the movie is really interesting. There's not a, not a ton of music. There's that one use of Mozart. There's an original score that has some really beautiful thematic music that is used very judiciously and sparingly. And then there are about three or four pop tunes that pop up, including that Barbara Lewis. Uh, tune at the end i don't know lucy I, I want to segue here but is there one more thing you want to say about this movie yeah
1: or? yeah just um i was so struck by the use of of water throughout the movie yeah. as a as a narrative device and as a device that really um pulled this together i i don't think i can say enough things about how much jenkins understands the cutting room floor and its importance um in in this movie um and, and so the the juxtaposition that we get throughout um of uh, Water that's coming, you know, through the faucet in these housing projects and specifically the image of the sink filled with water and ice cubes and the sound we get from that. And then the ocean, the expansive ocean and the sound of the waves lapping at the shore and a body being in the water or a body... um, sort of just being on the periphery of the water. I, I was really, really struck by that.
2: Yeah, It's hard not to just fall completely in love with this movie, and really, uh, every little choice seems to be so exquisitely cared for uh, in this movie, and uh, we're going to begin to annoy you if we go on and on. Can I uh, ask her about yeah.
0: a potential point of criticism just to get your take, Colin, about yeah. the Naomi Harris's depiction of the mother? I think when I, was ta- when I was reviewing this movie on my show, the two women I was talking with said, this actually is a stereotype that we're seeing on the screen. The crack addicted mother who also kind of has a heart of gold, but actually can't, you know, g- get above it and I found incredible kind of pathos to that performance but in the depiction of you know the main female character here did you think that was as true to the story and the person as the male representation
2: I'll throw it back to the guests. although I, one if not both of the creators of this I think it's based somewhat on Barry Jenkins's mother isn't it, it is. I mean Bia, yeah. yeah so I don't know like I'm not going to sit here and say that Barry <laughs> Jenkins didn't get a crack addicted mother right if that's based on his mother
3: you know? Wait, I- I think about that a lot of times when you see a depiction of a character and it's like stereotypical um you could argue that for a lot of characters. I think I think that's not unfair, but I think I think Naomi Harris did a good job. And I think it's a it's a real well-done performance and a well-done depiction of that because like sometimes that is what what that's like. Like sometimes stereotype I, I understand like as a uh an artist you kind of have to expand more on stuff like that, but like sometimes stereotype is a stereotype for a reason. You know what I mean? Like it's I feel like I didn't, I didn't see anything inauthentic about that cuz I I know I know women like that. I know like pe- people's parents who 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 are who are on drugs and it's it's a real struggle and I see that in her. It's like she wants to be a good parent but it's like you can't really escape that the pull of the of the drug on you. So I I, I think one thing is the 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 difficulty is like the movie's not about her. So you you don't get, you're not going to get that much. You don't get that much in depth on any other character either. Like you don't get Janelle Monet's character can be kind of seen as a, a stereotype in a sense that she's like that motherly figure. And it's like she says it, see, like a lot of her lines are kind of cliche, but she doesn't. They, the movie does a good job. and She does a good job of delivering them to a point where you don't feel like, oh, I'm sick of this type of character because she does it such a great job. And I think that's my opinion on the whole movie is like a lot of it can be seen as stereotypical, except for the fact that they just do a great job of hammering it at home and making it feel like something new and something authentic. Lucy, we have to talk about Jonathan McNichol's
2: mother. Not really, and she doesn't, by the way, have a crack problem or anything. Like that. But um, but she uh, she, saw, <laughs> she saw this movie and she really liked it. But she really, she really liked it. And and there's a way in which certain movies like this, and and we're all contributing to this right now too. You know, certain works of art. I mean, Hamilton is probably the best example right yeah. now. You know, you're not allowed to just like something. You know, like it. Ha- you you have to have this other reaction to it, and you're really not allowed to not like it. Um, and And I've never understood that anyway. People sort of wanting you to to embrace something at the level that they embrace it, but it does seem to go on. And I want to just say it's okay for Jonathan's mother just to like this movie. Do 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 people ever try to bully you into their you know? Their aesthetic ecstasies.
1: Oh yeah. Um. I, I mean, I, I thought Hamilton was a, a really interesting kind of point counterpoint to this. Um. Only because I um I was lucky enough to see it in October and loved the soundtrack. Totally obsessed with Hamilton. I like Broadway as a as a bigger genre. Um. But uh, I kind of felt after the first half like I could have walked out of the theater. They. The, you know. I felt like the actors could have been going off stage and eating pizza between the numbers. Um. And and so. I I think people have not uh tried to bully me into liking something or or not liking something. Um maybe short of like uh certain tech, you know technological things that I really have an aversion to after spending uh the entirety of my day in a, a pint-sized studio around <laughs> technology. Um no. Uh and and I hope that no one bullied uh Jonathan's kind and lovely and not crack addicted uh mother either. <laughs>
2: No, nobody should. But there is that kind of thing, right? I mean, like absolutely. This, you
3: know. I see that a lot, and I, I I can understand the the inclination to want somebody to like something as much as you, but. I what, if if I ever feel myself doing that, it's more like I want you to appreciate the the subtlety and the mm. the technique behind it. Not saying mm. like you have to like it as much as me, but if I hate when someone dismisses something outright, because a lot of times it's just kind of a contrarian perspective. So it's like you dismiss it like you can't say like if I see a movie like Moonlight, someone says oh that was garbage. How could you say that? Like there's so much like if you don't like it, that's absolutely fine. You don't have to like it, but I feel like you have to at least appreciate what went into it. And it's mm-hmm. not just another like piece of. So it's like I, I can understand why people. I don't. I, I try not to do it myself, but it's like I understand why. But you, you, no one has. Like I don't understand why people just can't be happy liking something, and that's that's enough. You know what I mean? Like I like, I like. I know a lot of people that don't like Hamilton. I like Hamilton, and it's like I don't need to love it, and I don't need anyone else to love it or hate. Like just I can I can appreciate art on my own.
2: It's a news flash to me that there are people who don't like Hamilton, but there's a lot uh, of uh, comedians people, on Twitter mean, oh, that they, <laughs> they, oh, they hate it. I like, want to they, follow. They're all a
3: of critical them. bunch. I mean, <laughs> not
0: comedians. that I don't like
2: Hamilton, but um, but no, there's some impulse like that. I mean, the example I gave is we're emailing me around, uh, emailing around. Bill Curry, with whom I actually saw Moonlight last uh, last night. Um, thinks I should like Leonard Cohen and I don't like Leonard Cohen and I'm never going to like Leonard Cohen. And like for Christmas I'll get like an autobiography by, of Leonard Cohen and maybe some kind of mixed CD of Leonard Cohen stuff and I just like it never stops. And and I don't – like I don't think I've ever done that with people. I mean there's this great um, uh, video um, from a little web series called Tiny Apartment. Uh, and one of the episodes is about just people – like it's a, it's a montage of about, about 117 people yelling – at the two protagonists you have to see the wire uh, and like re-word, this reworded they say it in different ways you know there's a, this is a little tiny girl who says it's an incredible fusion of urban drama <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you know <laughs> I don't know maybe that's time that's just an instinct we have you know we love something so we need, we need it to be loved so
0: well, oh, so there are few different impulses there I think there, I don't think there's anything insidious about wanting validation in terms of the art that you really respond to. As much as I totally agree with you, Sean, that art is something that, I don't know if we're going to that Adam Kirsch PCI, but art is something that one responds to first and foremost personally. I mean, it is something that is a subjective experience, both in terms of its creation and its reception. And I love, hey, I have a show about movies in which I talk about movies every week. I love talking about movies with other people. I love getting their opinions. Um, I, try to, I try to articulate as well as I can why I like something, but if you don't come away like, liking it. That's not um I, I don't see that as fault of my own. However, in that wire talk, and maybe we'll see this with Moonlight as well, I think there's a predilection from maybe the like cultural or economic elite to say, oh now I understand poverty because I watch The Wire. <laughs> yeah, Let me tell you about, you know, the problems in the city of Baltimore. That is something that I think has nothing to do with art and just has to do with mm. kind of smug, kind of easy understanding of something at a superficial level.
3: It's like the easiest form of cultural tourism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't even have to go to the place. Yeah. Like, you just say, oh, yeah, I saw The Wire. I understand it. It's like, you don't understand it. You understand this part of it. You understand, mm-hmm. like, uh, David Simon's vision of Baltimore, but you don't see you're not getting the whole picture. So like, when you don't expand outward from that and, and try to explore more of it and you just use the wire as your own, uh, that's your frame of reference. That's the issue for me. This is what I call, my, this is my phrase
2: of the year: a cheap date with your conscience. Um, so, Lucy, you get the last word about this. Yeah,
1: d- just very quickly, if I may. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that we're seeing the uh, confluence of, of two things: the incessant need for external validation and um, the the sort of uptick in armchair activism. Both of which are, are probably personified uh, on Facebook uh, more than anywhere else in the world. And and so, I think you know, if, if someone says, well, I. Really Really want you to like this thing. It it may be. Um, I really want you to like this thing because I'm not sure if I am X Y Z. If I like this or if I dislike this.
2: All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about a different kind of art, a different kind of provocative art, and an essay that we read and were interested in. Right. Laurie Mack doing the breaks here. Uh, All right. So we're uh, back. This is The Nose, and uh, we have um – First of all, I, I don't, I don't, did I even say this? We're in the New Haven studios today, so that's why we sound so New Haveny. y uh, And with us are, are Tom Breen, a uh, film critic for the New Haven Independent and the host of Deep Focus on WNHH. Lucy Gelman, a reporter for the New Haven Independent and station manager at WNHH. And Sean Murray, a stand-up comedian based in New Haven. This is his first uh, Nose debut. We hope it is the first of many to come. So uh, we're going to try to fuse two things here in this second segment. One of them is an art controversy that happened here in New Haven. Uh, And the other one is an essay that we read uh, in Slate uh, by Adam Kirsch. It's about kind of um, the challenge to art and intellectualism uh, when something happens like the Trump election that seems to just defy gravity. Um, So but uh, I guess maybe to get this started, uh, and Tom, I know you've been writing about this. So tell us about the cop pig art debate.
0: So. Every October, New Haven hosts this month-long celebration of local artists called Citywide Open Studios. And the gallery and kind of arts institution that organizes these celebrations is called Art Space. It's a gallery on Orange Street and Crown Street. Uh, every year, So hundreds of artists around the city participate. There are venues all over the city. But the opening weekend for the past few years has taken place at the Goff Street Armory, which is otherwise a kind of a, an empty armory, but during this weekend in October, is filled with hundreds of works of art. ArtSpace commissioned an artwork from a number of artists, but one from an artist named Gordon Skinner, uh, that they mounted on the periphery of the armory, including uh, on a side street that looks out on the Whaley Prison. This artwork, called Cops, is a kind of mixed media work that includes a painting of a pig wearing a cop hat. The New Haven's director of Parks and Recreation, Rebecca Bombero, sent an email to ArtSpace saying, can you please move this? We've received a complaint from a police officer and a correctional officer that this is offensive they don't understand the context in which it was placed they, they see a city owned building in the armory and they think why is there this such inflammatory imagery Gordon Skinner didn't want the picture put in the entryway to the armory. Instead, he wanted it put in the gallery space downtown, uh, and he wanted a conversation with community members, with artists, with activists, and with police officers. That was about two months ago, and there have been a few conversations, and this upcoming Saturday, Art Space has resolved to remount the pig with the cop hat in its original location uh, on the side of the Gough Street Armory, looking out over the correctional center.
2: So, I don't know, Sean... I've gone back and forth on this a few times, and I, I I do have this little phrase that I will now sort of wear out my welcome here, and I have this little phrase, New Haven bubble, I sometimes say to myself. And sometimes when I'm reading about something like this, I think, well, oh, this could be like one of these New Haven bubble stories. But on the other hand, it could be a really interesting debate about – Yeah, I say it to Jonathan mainly. Um, this could be really also a really interesting debate about the role of provocative art. I know, how does it play for you?
3: Uh, I, th- I find it – it's kind of amusing just um... – how i don't think it's unfair for a cop to be offended by that image Mm -hmm. but i don't see i feel like when there's so much more going on uh socially politically that concerns cops behavior like something like that it doesn't i can't i can't feel as bad for a cop seeing an image of a, a pig with a cops hat and badge as I do for like because whenever there's a discussion about police brutality or something, it did that's that's something they bring up. It's like, oh well there was a thing with the like when Colin Kaepernick wore the socks with the, the, the pigs on them with the with the cops and it's like well that's not do you use that as a as a moment to talk about um the socks and not about the the larger issue. And mm. I I feel like leave it up. Uh, I, I'm I'm totally fine with it being up there and you know I mean it's it's. I, I feel like it's gotten the response that you would want out of it as the creator of it. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I read about it before I saw the likeness of it. It's actually a very happy-looking pig, anyway. It could be It's kind of cute if, if they had, like, the village pigs, and each one of them had, like, a different identity, like a construction worker and a cop or something. This would be the cop one. You know? but, so, Lucy, what's your take?
1: Oh, I'm going to be in, in hot water uh, as, a, as a reporter for saying this, I think. But um, for me, as someone who is this lapsed art historian, this was much more about an institution, so i.e. art space, um, being interested in creating conflict where there wasn't that much conflict so I, I don't think the piece should have been taken down but I also think there needed to be more discussion with the people who lived in that community before the piece went up that's really really important New Haven's not that big it's a city of 132,000 people it's okay to have a round table in fact I think the people of New Haven uh, like really enjoy community forums and roundtables and, and that's yeah, part of our to. it's part of our <laughs> blissful bubble Colin yeah. um, it, it's something that we actually really enjoy um, and, and so I, I think think then after the piece was taken down there was a question for me about why are you holding these events downtown and not in the Whaley Edgewood Beaver Hills section of New Haven, which um it it, there kind of is a specific, I think, racial and socioeconomic divide between those two neighborhoods. And so for me that was more interesting. I think it's really good that ultimately, so last Tuesday, um, people from the New Haven police department and the New Haven fire department and the city arts are Andy Wolf came to art space and, um, and got involved in this discussion. I think, uh, the New Haven police department probably should have been involved in this discussion way before the fact, once the community was coming out. Um, but I, I also kind of feel, um, a little like this was just manufacturing controversy that ultimately took away from a lot of the other artists who exhibited in Citywide Open Studio. So almost 500 artists in New Haven exhibit over these uh, sort of three and a half, four weeks in October. And, um, and I, you know, I hope they don't feel that their work was overshadowed because a lot of them, including someone like Mohammed Hafez, are doing work that is inherently and much more powerfully political.
2: All right. Well, I, can we segue from this to the um, – so we read this piece by Adam Kirsch. Uh, it's in Slate. It's a ter- I think it's a terrific essay. Uh, I, I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's a really provocative. Uh, it's what can artists do to oppose Trump. And he, he begins by saying – I think kind of provocatively, that the Trump victory has already put a number of complacent American assumptions to the test. Many things that liberal educated people believed were cherished by all Americans turned out to be a matter of indifference to almost half of them. A free objective press, respect for women, respect for the Constitution, common decency. One illusion that will be particularly painful to part with is the idea that high culture and the arts have any effective power in American life. I know, Sean, that was part of what you reacted to in this piece.
3: Yeah, um well, to kind of bring it back to Hamilton. That was uh, Hamilton's another a uh, uh, pretty exemplary of that where I f- I feel like what you would call the like the liberal elite Ill- intellectual elite like they feel like everyone has to connect to something the same way and mm-hmm. it's like or or even that if you connected to that how could you see how could you have any other opinion where it's like sometimes you like something and you don't agree with uh the 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 message of it, like like the movie The Dark Knight. When you think about it, it's about the Bush administration, the 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 Patriot Act, and all that stuff. Like when he's using um, technology to tap into everyone's phone. I love The Dark Knight. I don't agree that a one person should have that type of technology. So me like The Dark Knight doesn't mean I I approve of the Patriot Act and like government invasiveness. So I feel like I like the idea that um. I feel like maybe high culture doesn't have any effect on... And it's because so much stuff, even if something as big as Hamilton, is very niche in the sense that it's it's very coastal. Like, people in... Flyover states don't—they'll never. Most of them will never even get to get to see. They won't even be in the same city as like a place where Hamilton would even like. If it expands outward, they're not going to get to go to see Hamilton. So it doesn't mean anything to them in the same way. You know,
2: I mean, Tom, Tom. One of the th- piece the arguments that Kirsch makes really well and powerfully in this piece is that that, that a certain kind of n- storytelling, human centered art um, has more power and more lasting effect than kind of statement art. So that, you know, the Jodes, there's something, you know, you could could make a lot of statement art about poverty, about the plight of workers uh, during a particular period of American uh, history. But, we'll remember the Jodes. We'll remember that story. Uh, you, you just have to see that, that name, and everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. He cites prior Walter, uh, Walter in uh, Angels in America um, as another kind of example of that. And, and I think you could say that Moonlight fits into that category pretty nicely, too. That, you know, I, I couldn't exactly tell you what the political argument of Moonlight is, but I think we all felt a little bit altered anyway as a result of seeing it.
0: And I think something like Moonlight and the best kind of highly personal, highly specific art encourages something that has such profound political implications, and that is empathy, And that when art encourages us to better, I mean, I, return, I may have even mentioned this the last time I was on the show, but a mantra of Roger Ebert's was that movies were empathy machines. They encouraged audiences to think and understand the life experience of people that they simply were not. I mean, it's very difficult sometimes to understand what other people are thinking and experiencing. And movies at their best, not just through the story but through the technique, can communicate that. The last time I was on the show, we spoke about Snow Snowden, the latest Oliver Stone movie. And I think Stone represents a great example of someone who's made plenty of terrible political art and plenty of great <laughs> yeah. political art. Snowden, I think, varied a bit more towards the terrible. But then something like JFK that I think is a really powerful piece. And what distinguishes the two is that character of Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, in that we experience just the tumult and paranoia and disorientation of the military industrial complex through this one guy who's discovering it, right? We see the personal implications and like almost the intellectual implications of this whole machine crumbling around him in snowden it's it's too it's too direct i hate to say it but it's too much this is what oliver stone the filmmaker believes these are the sins of america right now and i need to make sure the audience comes away with the message i want uh art as kirsch argues and as his hero Lionel do argues, should be subjective it should be kind of ambiguous it's open to interpretation i think that's what kirsch is defending here when he says our our hearts will always be with the prior walters even if power resides with uh the (laughs) Rycones. Well,
2: you know, Lucy, one of the other little sentences in this piece that really rung out to me, at one point, I may not be quoting him exactly, but he of course says something something like, one of the things that may be the hardest thing to get used to is powerlessness. You know, and I do feel like we've just been through a period where like, quote unquote, everybody said, no, 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 you can't do this. No, I mean, like, you really can't do this. You know, I mean, and, and, and so whoever it is that you respect, whether it's David Remnick, you know or Oprah or I mean Oprah couldn't stop this right. you know there's kind of a sense that 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 nobody that we think has cultural power had any power to stop this from happening
1: yeah well and and I think you s- you even see people uh, who were talking about oh now that you know Hillary has Beyonce and Jay-Z behind her she's going to be okay <laughs> <That's right>. um, <laughs> which was sort of the the very very final leg uh, before the election I'll see um, your
2: your Beyonce and raise you Scott Baio right, right. <laughs> anyway exactly. continue. Most but, powerful men in Hollywood. But
1: I'm, I mean, I think what we're all sort of uh, the point that we're all sort of walking around or dancing around is um, is the fact that you can be an artist and you can be an activist. But if you're going to do both at the same time, you really need to be doing it deliberately and you need to be doing it with something uh, with a work of art that isn't um, maybe instant or um, or or maybe it is, but um, but with something that's going to have staying power. And I think you know, uh, someone. So Tom, you were talking about Oliver Stone. I I would say you know Laura Poitras is someone who cares very much. I think about the art of filmmaking, but she does it as a means to political ends.
2: Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Sean, in the, as we were emailing back and forth about this, um, you wrote, I thought this was a great reaction to the Chris piece, specifically about how intellectuals and artists have to realize that making art doesn't stand in for political action. That, you know, as, as Tom is saying and as Lucy is saying, you can do this at this really nuanced level. You can tell stories. I mean, I think if you got 10 million people to watch uh, Moonlight, some of them would really be changed mm-hmm. by it. But that's sort of not
3: the same thing as political action absolutely i i was i was i was going to try to get to that myself because it's like writing a strongly worded letter is not the same as going down and like marching you know what i mean like it's at some point you have to do something because and I, you uh, Lucy was talking about armchair activism earlier i feel like a lot on twitter and facebook is like i'll post something and then that's enough and it's like but did you go out and vote did you go out and like campaign did you go out and like actually do something in the community like i feel like so much is like on a broad scale, like just saying, go vote for Hillary, not Trump, and it's like, hey, we were talking about in the email thread. Like by the time you say something like that, most people who people have made up their mind before they hear any song that denounces any candidate. You know what I mean? So a lot of times they'll take that as an affront, as someone who's a supporter of that. It's more of an affront to their point of view than it is a chance to see a different perspective. And I feel like at some point you can't just use your art as as a weapon. You could also have to go out and use like be a person who's not just an artist and go out and do something if you want to affect change because just saying making a song where you say I don't think Trump's a good guy isn't isn't enough we all we all have heard that idea already but what are you going to do beyond that
2: right um first of all i have to quote groucho now uh <laughs> who said uh, in one of the films I'm not in the habit of making threats, but there'll be a strongly worded letter in the Times about this tomorrow. Um, So we have to uh, break pretty soon, Tom. But I I know I did say this in the email, although I, I didn't think of the most poignant symbol of this. There's no more poignant symbol than Chris Christie sitting at a Springsteen concert, right? He loves Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is politically 180 degrees away from him. Everything that Bruce Springsteen is trying to the extent that Springsteen is trying politically which he's doing half the time to get people to think and see and feel is not necessarily what Chris Christie embraces but it doesn't matter it doesn't because people as Sean is saying people are already pretty hardened off by the time they get to culture you know so i mean they can just turn down the volume on the stuff they don't like
0: Springsteen has been the perfect example for decades of that superficial proximity to a political perspective being like enough for politicians, Born in the USA being the most prominent example. I remember going to Fourth of July celebration by Wilper Cross a few years ago with Lucy, and they played Born in the USA probably 15 times in a row. <laughs> and of course, to think about the song and its, its very strong anti-war message, uh, it was a bit discordant with the explosions happening in the sky.
2: All right, we're gonna take a little break here. We'll come back with some recommendations after this.
1: The devil and John when they took a walk together and they ended up on Washington talking to the river. He said, "I surrounded myself with doctors and deep thinkers, the big heads and soft bodies make for lousy lovers."
0: Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern today was Jumpy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Al Pacino. All of our episodes can be found at WNPR.org/slash Colin. On Monday, we're bringing back Colin's original conversation with Nancy Butler. Now, back to the nose.
2: All right. So we're going to recommend a few things to you. Uh, We'll start with Lucy Gelman.
1: Great. Uh, So I have two really quick recommendations. The first is a podcast. It's called Creative Equal and Created Equal, excuse me. It's out of WDET, which is uh, the NPR affiliate in Detroit at Wayne State University that I grew up listening to. Um, It's really good. It looks at the issues of race and inequality, often from a historical perspective. If you're a dork like me, even if you're not. Uh, try giving it a chance. And the other is a book. It just came out uh, earlier in November. It's called The Fish Market and it's by Lee Vandervoo, which is a great name. And it is about how maritime laws... Are changing um, both the phenomenon of overfishing and then also um, the economy uh, sort of uh, on the seas for fishermen and, um, and and what that looks like in terms of unemployment it 's something I had absolutely no idea about, and I feel much more well informed after reading it
0: all
2: right, Tom Breen, you go next
0: so as much, I was thinking of endorsing a movie since I talk a lot about movies, but this I was so moved by this Adam Kirsch piece I wanted to endorse an essay going back in the way back machine that it reminded me a lot of. And that's a 1954 essay by the intellectual literary critic Irving Howe, and it's called This Age of Conformity. Uh, and at a time when he was really despairing that intellectual life in America had been completely subsumed by the victorious American bureaucratic machine, where intellects were, intellectuals were becoming part of the universities and no longer offering kind of critical perspectives on something that they were supposed to be a little bit distant from, he gave this kind of call to arms. And I think it applies as much to people reading Adam Kirsch's article as his. And I just want to read the last Last sentence of the essay, which is the most glorious vision of the intellectual life is still that which is loosely called humanist the idea of a mind committed yet dispassionate, ready to stand alone, curious, eager, skeptical. And I take those words to heart.
3: All right. Sean Murray, what have you got for us? Uh, there's a podcast a little bit more low culture than what you guys are doing, but there's a podcast by this comedian uh, Ian Carmel called All Fantasy Everything, where they uh, they just basically fantasy draft anything in pop culture. So they did an episode with the uh, the cast of uh, Airheads. So they're like like works that they did. Like who would what Steve Buscemi movie would you pick to get a top five? They did one on Candy. They did one on The Mall. It's really fun. They get a good group of like comedians and uh, people. Like he had John Cryer on episode for a Candy episode. Mm. It's just really fun. Uh, Way to just think about, like, because sometimes a lot of times, you'll, like, Ian will make a pick and he's like, I'll, I made this pick not because I wanted it so much, but it's just like, I feel like it had to be discussed. And like, it's an interesting way to think about how you would like pick things from pop culture. Sometimes you you just want it to be spoken about more than you actually appreciate that thing. And um, this is uh, this book, uh, I can't even pronounce this guy's uh, name. It's a Chinese uh, science fiction writer. It's called The Three Body Problem. I just read it, it's one of the first books I've finished in months cuz of school and work but um it's a really fascinating uh book about um uh this an alien civilization coming in contact with uh with with humans and there's a group of people who really want like the the aliens to come down and like Take over the world in order because like they feel like humanity is has is lost in terms of like being able to govern ourselves and there's a there's a group of people who want like them to come but just to to get some of their technology so it's a really interesting perspective on like who's right in mm-hmm. in that situation
2: and what's the podcast called again
3: All Fantasy Everything
2: yeah and so that's what, so, and so you draft thing you do it like a draft you yeah know? so he'll, like, he'll get like um, okay, I'm trying to decide which which Steve Buscemi movie I would draft you know that would yes yeah, so, um
3: a, so there is a film critic Devin Faragi whose kind of name's been not so it's, it's not a good name to have right now but um he 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 uh, he kind of like cheated and he um Steve was on an episode of the Simpsons so he yeah. took the Simpsons and everyone was like oh that's a great pick I never even thought to do that yeah. and he kind of like won like, you don't win but he's like they were like we feel like you won after you picked the Simpsons <laughs> cuz you picked the greatest show in the history of TV
2: all right. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna endorse two books. Uh, one of them is called uh, Some Luck by Jane Smiley. This is not a new book. It's out in paperback. It's been out for a while. I just ha- happened upon it. It has this amazing narrative structure. It follows uh, an Iowa farm family, a sprawling Iowa farm family, year by year from, I think, sometime in the 1920s to maybe sometime in the early 1950s. And so each chapter is about maybe four pages long, and it's a year. Uh, and the, as these people go through all of the wrenching moments of history that are Contained in those years, the family sprawls out more, becomes more urban, encounters uh, more different kinds of people. Uh, I, I don't know; I'm not, I'm not doing it justice, but it's it's an amazing style of narration. Uh, Jane was Jane Smiley was on our show when we did historical novels, and I think I picked up the novel to read to get ready for that show, and I never did it. Uh, but then I read it, and it's amazing. And then also uh, a ton of French, uh, great uh, Irish. A uh, crime novelist has a new book out called *The Trespasser*. Um, also, just absolutely terrific if you like that kind of thing. Uh, it's a detective story. I think it's one of her better ones. Uh, and I, I will now reveal that I am consuming it. I almost finished it as an uh, audible, uh, as an audio book. And so much depends on the reader, you know, and the re- the reader who's doing this is really good. She's got the voice uh, just right. So um, so anyway, I'm excited to be able to recommend two books because usually I haven't read anything except for the stuff that we do to get ready for the show. Uh, so thanks very much to Jonathan McNichol and his wonderful mother uh, mm-hmm. and to whom we dedicate this show. We dedicate this show <laughs> to Jonathan's mom. Thanks to Tom Breen, a film critic for the New Haven Independent and the host of Deep Focus on WNHH. Lucy Gelman, reporter for the New Haven Independent Station, manager at WNHH. Sean Murray, look for him, stand-up comedian based here in New Haven. we got to get him up to Hartford to the CT Improv uh, venue, too. Thanks for doing this today, guys. And we'll be back on Monday uh, with a reprise of the Pastor Nancy Butler Show.
1: You know, it's a very,
3: very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy like a Cracker Bell.
0: Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking. Talking about this, and talking about that. and Talk about everything as a matter of fact, oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon,
3: Farmington, yeah 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 yeah. All the way.